That's a hard life. When you choose to be an actor, who on earth has a gun shoved in their mouth by their parents to be an actor? So if you choose to go down this road, do it because you can't not do it. And then when things go south, and they will, feel sorry for yourself for about two seconds, and then say, well, I'm doing what I want to do. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Rob Paulson's on the show today. Rob is an actor with more than 500 film and television credits. Just a few of his credits include being the voice of Raphael on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Yakko on Animaniacs, Pinky from Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain, Carl Weezer from Jimmy Neutron, and Spike in the Land Before Time films and television series. He has even been a voice on one of my daughter's favorite animated series, Rick and Morty. Rob won an Emmy for Outstanding Performer in an Animated Program for his role as Pinky, as well as three Annie Awards. He has also worked with some hugely successful filmmakers over the last four decades, including Steven Spielberg, who recently invited Rob to be part of an Animaniacs reboot which premieres on Hulu this fall. Rob's biography, Voice Lessons, which he wrote with Michael Fleeman, came out last year and I was able to read it before our interview. The book covers his entire career as a singer and actor, including his battle with throat cancer and how his diagnosis, treatment, and recovery affected his career and his outlook on life. When the interview starts, it feels like you're dropping into a conversation that's already in progress. That's because you are indeed dropping into a conversation that is already in progress. I decided to hit record as we were setting up, before the interview started. Normally, my editor, Jason, would cut this banter from the interview, but we decided to keep it because you get to hear how great Rob and I hit it off right out of the gate. Turns out Rob and I have a few things in common that made the interview flow nicely. The result is a freewheeling conversation in which Rob's artistic journey unfolded organically and sometimes veered into unexpected topics like Steve Martin, the banjo, and even his love of hockey. So without further ado, let's jump right into my talk with Emmy-winning film and voice actor Rob Paulson. And you can hear me and see me. I mean, seeing me doesn't, you probably want to make sure that you've taken whatever medication you can for the day because yeah, kind of go, wow, so that's what Carl Weezer looks like. Oh, dear. <laughs> But no, I'm good. As long as you can hear me, I'm fine. Because the, the obviously, it's you and your badass collection of git boxes and that bitching. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Banjo over your left shoulder. Wow, good for you. Yeah, I, I inherited that banjo from my dad. And mm -hmm. I still haven't even... I'm, I'm so intimidated by it because my idea of... If I'm going to play banjo, I want to play... You want to be Earl Scruggs. Yeah, I want to play Foggy Mountain Breakdown and Steve Martin and, you know, be the... Isn't Virtuoso. that interesting? No wonder you guys are doing, and by the way, Dream Path is a very cool, very cool name for a podcast, especially that does what this does. But isn't it fascinating that one of the first people you mentioned with respect to banjo, and you're younger than I, but the, one of the first people you mentioned in the same name as Earl Scruggs is Steve Martin. Steve would flip. You know, because he's like, are you fucking kidding me? You're going to put me in, you would mention me with arguably, you know, maybe, um, I think of Bela Fleck, you know, mm -hmm. Bela Fleck would go, okay, I'm Earl Scruggs. But for Steve Martin, for you to mention Steve Martin as a banjoist in the same breath as Earl Scruggs, he would lose his shit, oh. <laughs> which is so fascinating because his dream path 
you know, his avocation was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to pick around the banjo. But you go, holy shit. Oh, yeah, he's a funny guy. But listen to that guy play the banjo. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, he, he he's amazing, and and yeah. he's also I I think he's a painter as well. Mm-hmm. The thing I like about Steve Martin is how he made the banjo so accessible to folks that probably would never even think about listening to banjo music. Beautifully said. So, uh, but I, my first exposure to Steve Martin was uh, my mom back. I think it was the early '80s. I was probably ten or eleven years old. And she let me buy the Let's Get Small tape. So she she was like, okay, so this is comedy, right? And I was like, yeah, this is a, a comedy album. And I, I bought it and I was listening to it and she she heard it and she's like, wait a minute, what is this appropriate? I was like, mom, this is hilarious. Yeah. And he, I don't think to this day, I don't think Steve has ever, ever used a blue joke. I mean, relative to... Eddie Murphy and and all the other stuff. Oh that yeah, yeah. Came along as you were growing up. I mean, I yeah, it was Steve Martin. Pretty tame stuff. Yeah. Pretty tame stuff. It was the arrow in the head and uh, um, all of that. His timing was impe- is impeccable. His, he he does that really deep thing at the end of the of. I remember buying that record because that was probably in high school when that record came out. It was uh, before I go. I'd like to leave you with something that my grandfather told me many years ago. Something I'll never forget. Something that sticks with me through good times and bad. Something I think of the very last thing at night and the first thing every morning. He looked at me and he said, young Steve, always. No, wait, never. And it was great that, that <laughs> he sets this big thing up and goes, I'll never forget it. Always. Shit. No, let me see if I got perfect. And I, <laughs> he's just the I remember. And I think, I think he, if I'm not mistaken, on one of the albums, he took that joke and he, and he brought it to. This uh, always carry a carry garbage a bag, trash, bag, tra- in trash bag in your car, and when it gets full, you can just throw it out the window. Toss it out the window. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Yeah. See, we're already just kicking the shit out of this, man. Right. Thank you very much. This is great. Yeah, great way to start the podcast. Yeah. Well, Rob, um, I wanted to tell you that I read your book. Oh, thank you. Yeah, appreciate that. I actually listened to the audio book version because I figured uh, you were reading it, and I might as well hear your voice actor. Might as well hear your voices and and plus the the some of the critters pop up. That's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a really great way to hear your story directly from you. you. And I appreciated how you start from the beginning, and it is kind of a linear story in in some ways, mm-hmm. but you don't candy coat it at all. Right. There's really really a lot of uh, ups and downs, and it takes you through quite a journey. Well, it is. It turns out a dream path. See what I did there. <laughs> Thank you, firstly, for reading it. And by the way, for those of you, and not only you, but for those folks who either will be given or find a dog-eared copy at uh, the dental office or something, if you don't like the book, it'll help you straighten out a table that's a little wonky, right. too. So it's a multi-purpose <laughs> book. Yeah, I think that, and by the way, I am not a writer. I am good at my job, but as I've gotten older, I'm smart enough to know what I'm not smart at. And my friend, Mike Fleeman, who is the co-writer, uh, did all the heavy lifting. He took my story, which I must tell you, as I was recording it, was not only a wonderful experience, it's like getting paid to go to therapy for a year by, you know, but he made it readable. Uh, There were a number of times during the experience where I said, Mike, look, it's not false modesty, but this is really minutia. He said, no, no, trust me, this is important. And I'll be damned, the way he structured it really does. I, I have to say, even people who have no agenda, that is no talk show host, no people who have no ax to grind, I have to say we've all gotten really great reviews 
precisely because the story was told professionally. So I learned a lot about book writing ain't my thing. But man, when, when you have somebody who knows what they're doing, it's way different. The opportunity was fantastic. And the reason I didn't sugarcoat it was because I'd had well-meaning fans for years who would come up to me at conventions and personal appearances and such and say, hey, man, what a career, dude. You know, my kids and I have been listening to you for 30 years and Animaniacs was coming back and you've done Ninja Turtles and, oh my God, it's just huge. And The Mask and The Tick and Mighty Max and go on and on and Tiny Toons, Turtles again, all that. And I thought the last thing the world needed was another celebrity memoir by a non-celebrity. And I'm, while I certainly will accept the compliment of being on your show and the spirit in which you've given it, I understand it's the characters who are famous, not I. I'm good at my job and I'm integral to it, but no more so than the writers or the artists or the storyboard people. This is a deeply collaborative effort. However, once I had throat cancer, surprise, I thought now I got a story. And as you know, the story is, um, it is pretty brutal in terms of what I experienced, but no more brutal than what people right now are dealing with mm. who are, maybe we'll even watch this one day, God bless them, while they're undergoing chemo or the 50 zillionth radiation thing, or their cancers come back, or whatever. It's brutal. Mm. However, as you know, the upside is that now, as a result of nice people like you, I get to talk about my experience, and I'm fine. And to the extent that my story, told in a readable way, will inspire someone else to say, holy shit, this guy was one of the voices of my childhood, and now my children's childhoods, and he had throat cancer, and he's back doing this gig. Maybe I can get through A, B, C, D. So it's, it's the same stuff that people have been doing for hundreds of years, trying to find a way to pay it forward, to touch more people. Certainly in this time, we have technology like this that allows us to push a button and within five minutes, somebody can hear a story that has to go, holy shit, that's me. I'm that guy. I'm not really familiar with Rob Paulson, but his story really resonates with me. I'm, I got this. Mm -hmm. that's, that's why I really appreciate you bringing it up because it's, it's really an, an important story for everyone, because we all have them. And not everybody has the luxury of sharing it like I do. Yeah. One of the fascinating aspects of your story, when you look at your IMDb filmography or your, um, your credits, I mean, you have over 500 credits on IMDb. Really? Wow. I should do this for a living. Yeah. And so <laughs> if you're looking at your IMDb and you have not read the book yet, you would think this guy is a made man. He's, ah. he's someone who got into the industry and was just set up for life. And okay, he got this gig on you know GI Joe in the early yeah. '80s, and all of a sudden, boom! It's it's just a, a done deal. But you hear the story and you realize that it is a hustle from start to finish. I mean, right now it's a hustle. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And it's a it's kind of a daunting thing to accept as an outsider looking in. Because I think we all have this concept of what it means to be in the business and show business and how easy it is. But Well said. Is that something that you, when you were writing the book, that really sunk in for you, just how much of a hustle it was as you're, you're telling your own story? You know, boy, you did read the book. And, and more importantly, I really appreciate the fact that you get it. And that is, again, a testament to Mike. He knew how to tell the story to make it most effective. Because it's not just a compendium of, and then I did, and then I did, and then you know me from, and then I won an Emmy, and then I went back, you know, and then I had lunch with Steven Spielberg. It's not about that. Those are remarkably wonderful stories in the life of a nondescript guy from 
Grand Blank, Michigan. Don't get me wrong. I still daily wear long sleeves because I'm black and blue from pinching myself. But not only did I have moments where I thought, holy shit, I really had a hell of a run. I have met and hang out and on my cell phone are the names and numbers of some of the most gifted artists in the history of our culture. I mean, I know these people. They come to my kids' birthday parties. They wrote lovely blurbs for my book. How on earth did I get so lucky? Then, especially when we started to to recount times uh, in the middle of my life, when, like you, I pretty much thought, I'm good. I'm going to have some years that are worse than others, but I'll be fine. Well, about 10 years ago, I had a time when I went right south real quick, and I had realized I'd played golf like the 10th day in a row with nothing on the horizon. And this has happened before, it's, but it was particularly difficult because I was getting a bit older and I started to have that stuff creep back in my head like, oh shit, that's it. This is the Hollywood. There's a, a lovely little analogy that's, that's been in Hollywood forever. And it's, who's Rob Paulson? You know, insert name. Right. Who's Rob Paulson? Get me Rob Paulson. Get me a Rob Paulson type. Get me a younger Rob Paulson. <laughs> who's Rob Paulson? <laughs> and you can fit in almost any name. So what I started doing is allowing that to run with me. I run with my head and it was devastating. But, you know, whatever, it's a midlife crisis, whatever. I didn't go out and buy, I, I'm a sports car nut. I had a very expensive car that I had bought when things were great. But it happens to everybody in some way, shape or form. And it was important to tell people that what you assume, you know, the picture is always a little bit different. It is still to this day a hustle. You have to learn to enjoy the hustle. That's really the truth. I get tired of auditioning for things. I get given a lot more work now than I used to, make no mistake. I've earned a certain amount of, uh, of I think, uh, deference, and I'm grateful, and I really am. However, I audition at least once or twice a week for things because it's different. Celebrity is a different animal, and it will always be that. Now, I'm becoming more and more of a celebrity recognizably because of, again, nice folks like you, opportunities like this, the book, video things. So, and, and I've just been around for so long that it happens probably three or four times a month where I'll be in a store or whatever. It's, are you the guy that does the funny voices? And I sure am. You like Animaniacs? <laughs> and then they do just what you're doing right now. They just go, whoa, that's wild. Yeah. And so it's glorious. It is, I'd be lying if I said it was a hassle. It's the most wonderful thing when people make a fuss over you because in my case, there's no downside. It's all about joy, nostalgia, fun, kindness. It's all glorious. But you really have to learn how to, if, if, you, if you're an artist or a freelance person, you own your own business, unless you're the person that's getting paid by the boss who hires you, I'm a you know, I'm a contract player. And once I'm done with the show, it's time to go on the next one. I've had arguably more than my share of success in this realm, but you got to learn to love the hustle. It's just, and, and as, pardon me, as I was recounting my story, that became very, very clear to me how much I loved getting from 1978 to current day, mm. because I was able to go back and say, holy shit, I remember that actor. He's gone now. Or I remember I had lunch with that guy. I remember Casey Kasem gave me a ride home once because my car was busted or all these things that I started to recall and go, holy shit, I've really enjoyed the hustle. I've enjoyed this ride. It is a marathon and I'm still running it and nobody cares what I look like, which it turns out is a really great thing for my gig. <laughs> so like I said, it's, if you can sit back and go, boy, I've really enjoyed this ride and I've, nobody gets out of here without a couple of dings. Yeah. 
But if you can sit back and go, boy, even including the shit that went south, I don't think I could have written this much better. I'm very grateful. So thank you for making that, making that mention because it was important. Yeah. So what does that hustle look like today? You mentioned two auditions a, a week, but what additional work do you do to stay relevant, to stay on everybody's radar? Excellent question. And this is, I think, germane to anybody uh, in our business who is a working actor, and that's precisely what I am. My, some of, when I say my, in quotes, some of my characters are really famous, huge, international celebrities. There are places in the world you can go and people go, Brad, Brad Pitt, hmm. How about Raphael? Oh, dude, yeah, sure. Ninja Turtles, you kidding me? Sure, of course. I, let me show you what I got. You know, the hustle today looks not dissimilar to this. Truthfully, that is to say, I am very involved in social media because it helps keep me relevant. It is not for everybody, but I'm 63 years old and clearly I have no trouble speaking, which is why I was yakko for a long time. I haven't shut up since you've been kind enough to push the record button, but it's a totally different landscape to be relevant, even with respect to people hiring you or considering you for a really big new job, where they'll say, wow, we're going to have um, George Clooney's going to be the talking dragon in this new Pixar movie. But you know, this guy came across my desk, Rob Paulson. Holy shit, this guy's done everything. And he won an Emmy and he's got all the hardware to the extent that matters. Maybe we should look at this guy. But I don't have the movie camera. I don't have a talk show every night. I don't have Who's Cooking the Soup Fridays on CBS once a week, you know? Yeah. What I have is a litany of characters that is arguably as relevant as any other showbiz endeavor over the last 30 years. Have I been involved with characters that make money? Sure. Ninja Turtles has earned over $6 billion in merchandise, and I've done two of them. Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain are coming back again this fall with Mr. Spielberg again, and me, and Yakko, Wacko, and Dot, and Pinky in the Brain. So relative to my side of the business, you could argue that I'm a star, but I don't have this. And there's always- And this, you're, you're pointing to your face, just face. for listeners. There's a, a cachet, sorry, thank you. There's a cachet to celebrity that will always be there. And I get it. There are actors my age, 10 or, 10 or 12 years, one way or the other, who have a real problem with celebrities doing animated voices. I'm not one of them. When Brad Pitt or, or uh, Ryan Reynolds, those guys moved to Hollywood, they didn't know anybody either. Their career path went differently. They are mega movie stars now, and God bless them. If you're the producer and you've got a half million bucks and you want to pay Ryan Reynolds to be Sonic the Hedgehog or, or whatever he was, uh, uh, no, um, Pikachu. I don't know how much he made. It's probably way more than that. But good for you. Yeah. It's your money. That's capitalism. Yeah. So I learned years ago that I can do one of two things. I can either be bitter, which will encroach upon my creativity because I'll be going, God damn it, those stupid assholes, they don't know what they're missing. Look, at, they hire me, I can give them this and that and this and that. And why, if I had been on a TV show, that's just so much wasted energy. So what I have to do is I've learned is be so good that a producer of a big animated project says, no, Rob is really good. Billy West is really good. Maurice LaMarche, they're all great. Frank Welker, I just want Brad Pitt because he's going to be on The Tonight Show and we can talk to him. The truth is that if I run The Tonight Show and as soon as I said, hey, God, Jimmy, how are you? Narf, he'd fall off his chair. If I went in the writer's room at Saturday Night Live and started saying, United States, Canada, Mexico, Panama, Haiti, Jamaica, Peru, they would all lose their shit because they've all grown up watching the same really great cartoons on which I and my friends were part of. But it's not about 
the celebrity thing. And so I totally get it. So that is a roundabout way of saying, since I accept that, I accept that when I go into a meeting for a project or to pitch a project, I have to go in and, and remind them of who I am. When they find out, they all, that is producers and Netflix, Hulu, they all go, oh my God, I, I had no idea. That's okay. Will you sign my Ninja Turtle action figure while you're here? I get that all the time. It's fantastic. But I then have to go in and say, and by the way, I was just on the Dream Path podcast and I've got all these other things and here are my numbers, here are my social media numbers. It has no bearing on my talent, good or bad. I get that. But it is germane to the way business is done yeah. right now. And so for me to say, wow, well, when I was a kid, all right, then don't do it. And if you're going to be bitter, don't do it around me. Because if you made a living doing essentially what got you in high school and now it's starting to go south after 30 years, then shut up. You've had a hell of a run. Right. So I chose to just say, no, I'm going to be positive and creative. And, 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 and it turns out that I've gotten a, a fan base of my relatively modest social media numbers that spans eight years old to 70 years old. Mm. They're the people who come to see me at a, at a convention, people 10 years older than I who get tearful when they hear animaniacs or like, oh my God, you have no idea what that means with my grandkids. And oh my God, I can't believe I'm meeting you. So there is no downside. If that's part of the hustle, I'll take it, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I, that makes a lot of sense to me that you would have that range of, of age for your fan base. Because if you go back to the Saturday morning cartoon era, which is a very nostalgic time for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. I was uh, really into Saturday morning cartoons. But even as I started to age out of it a little bit, you know, my younger sister was still sure. into it. And then my kids got into cartoons. So you as a parent, just seeing your kids enjoying cartoons, that connects you to that, to that content. Bingo. Exactly. Yeah. And same, that's the way it was uh, with Ninja Turtles for my kids and uh, Smurfs for me personally, because sure. I was still into you know, Smurfs when I was probably grade school and, and, uh, and you, were, you were involved in that project, I know. I was. I was. Um, but so how do you think the opportunities have changed for voice actors, given that we have right now so much content, so many different dispersed areas to get your content, Netflix, Hulu, mm -hmm. network television, have the opportunities increased for voice actors? Are there challenges today that were not there 10 or 20 years ago or 30 years ago? Well, I would submit that there are fewer challenges, at least to get your stuff out there. When I first came to LA in 1978, holy smoke, uh, it was ostensibly to do live action and music. I was a singer who became an actor and I came here, I was doing the usual stuff, St. Elsewhere, Hill Street, uh, MacGyver, amazing stories on camera ton of commercials on camera, and music. A lot of demos for friends that were writing songs and all of that. And I wanted to do animation, but it was not what got me out here because, as you suggested, animation was limited to Saturday morning on three major networks. That was it. Occasionally, like a local after-school special syndicated cartoon, that type of thing. Relatively few animated features, no video games, no HBO, no um, DVDs, no none of that. Now, the opportunity is enormous. In fact, I often, just this week, did a seminar online where voice actors want to talk to people who do what I do, not necessarily to do stage work. They say, holy crap, I really want to work in video games. And I get that. My son is 35. He's known all of my friends, of course, since he's been little. But when he gets to meet Troy Baker or Nolan North 
or Jen Hale, people whom he's grown up playing video games with, and you play a hundred hours of a video game and you hear some actor in your head mm. over and over and over. That's like, that's like watching 45 movies. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. So these guys are becoming rock and roll stars, man. And I get why people want to do this. So I submit that there is more opportunity, but just like everything else, with more opportunity comes more competition. And that's exactly how it should be. I really don't know how to stress enough to young folks who are daunted, use that word, and it's, it's an excellent word, who are daunted by my story or other folks who have been successful, quote unquote, like, oh my God, I don't know if I could do that. Well, I didn't either. It wasn't about that. It was about, I see it now and you've helped me. It was about, I didn't realize how much I'd enjoy the hustle, how much I'd enjoy the ride. And when I came to LA, I had no plan B. And I'm not saying I'm the prototype. I'm just saying I was like everybody else. If you're in Flint, Michigan, and you're doing your gig and people say, man, you're really good. And you, you're totally jonesing to do this gig. You go, well, ain't nobody going to see me here. So what do I do? Do I go to New York or LA? Well, I go to LA because I like the beach. Okay. It's like five times as far. Well, all right. I'll just And it was an adventure. I was 22 years old. Was it difficult? Well, it was challenging. It was a lot of competition, but nothing happened to me that I didn't expect. I expected not to get the first gig I auditioned for. I expected because I've heard over and over and over and over again, oh my God, don't do this unless you just can't not do it. Okay. I ticked that box. I got to do it. So it's not that I, I look askance at folks who, th who immediately think, oh my God, isn't that, it's not about that. It's hard to go to dental school. It's challenging to own your own, have your own podcast and try to monetize it. Yeah. It's, everything is a challenge and it should be because it made me better. And I could feel myself getting more progressively more talented, if you will, or, or learning my own chops, becoming more, uh, my skills are becoming more and more sharpened. It's exactly what it was supposed, like a, like a metaphorical whetstone. It sharpened my skills as I was going along. So Jesus Christ, after 40 years here, I should be good at this. And I think sometimes people look at people like me or others and say, oh my God, I can't do that. Well, of course not. I'm 63. <laughs> You're 20. If you could do this like this, your parents should scoop you up and take you somewhere because you're a prodigy. And that happens too, but not very often. Yeah. But I'm a working guy who's put my time in. I'm a blue collar worker in the dream factory, baby. <laughs> and if people use the word hard, pouring hot tar on a freeway in August is a hard job. Running a farm in this economy, especially now, is impossibly hard. What do you do if you're dealt that hand of cards because that's your family business? Running a restaurant in LA with all the hoops you got to jump through is really hard. Being a cop, every day we see it, that's a hard gig. Sometimes people have hard lives just because of, the, just because of the, the, the luck of the draw, where they were born, the color of their skin. That's a hard life. When you choose to be an actor, who on earth has a gun shoved in their mouth by their parents to be an actor? So. If you choose to go down this road, do it because you can't not do it. And then when things go south, and they will, feel sorry for yourself for about two seconds and then say, well, I'm doing what I want to do. And if you decide it's not for you anymore, go home. There's no shame in that. You change your mind. But there is more opportunity and the competition is more. And frankly, part of it, what disturbs me a little bit, and I call it the American Idol syndrome, is not that I have a problem with American Idol. 
obviously a successful TV show, Capitalism Baby. I'm a capitalist. But part of the drama of something like American Idol is young guy, Rob Paulson, shows up. He's a really good singer. He goes to Hollywood. He makes it through Hollywood week. He's there for the third or fourth week. He's like 19 years old. And they cut to Rob Paulson. He's been up for two nights trying to you know, work with his friends on harmonies for this Boys to Men song. And, and he's a little tearful because he hasn't slept in two nights. And he says, oh, man, I don't know, Ryan, I, I'm really close. But if I, don't, if I don't get through to the next week in Hollywood, I got to go back to working at the Cake and Steak in Grand Blanc, Michigan. And my career's over. Your career's over. You're fucking 19 years old. <laughs> <laughs> What's the matter with you? Oh, that's funny. You know, and, and so my point is, we see people who like that wonderful line in the, in the great film called uh, My Favorite Year with Peter O'Toole and Mark Lynn Baker. And it's a great scene in it where Peter O'Toole is this drunk screen icon, life imitated art. And he says, I'm not an actor, I'm a movie star. I get it. I know exactly what he means. American Idol. It's not... American, the most talented guy or girl who happens to get, it's not always about the talent, but it's American Idol. It's about fame. Yeah. I'll tell you what, the most prescient human in my lifetime has been Andy Warhol because he said, in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. And I'll be damned. It's not too dissimilar to the truth. So that's what gets me as an old guy now, because I encourage people to follow their dreams, especially in what I've done. I can't imagine a better way to move through life. And now that I'm closer to the end than the beginning, I get to do things like this. And all I have to do is say, Narv, and you, people can't see this, my incredibly handsome host is smiling. And probably a lot of you in your cars or in your bedroom or whatever you're listening to at the gym are smiling too. So it's worked out. But if I had been dissuaded by the fact that, oh, a lot of people want to do this, well, how many people are looking for a COVID vaccine right now? Man, it's, it's exactly the way it should be. So... Clearly, I ramble, but I do because I, I want to take these glorious opportunities to, to ruminate about these things because they're important. Yeah. There is a ton of opportunity, but just like everything else, the folks, there will be some folks with gobs of talent who won't get the shot. And then there are other folks who will hit the right note at the right time and boom. The question is whether will the first person be dissuaded and give up the opportunity to have a really interesting life, or will the second person have the understanding that the first shot at 25, if it goes through the roof, is not the end, unless you don't decide to, you know, roll with it right. like yours truly. Right. So it's a really interesting sort of uh, existential conundrum as I get older. That's why these opportunities are so great, because I know what I'm talking about, and I'm doing it in real time. You're talking to somebody who's been not only lucky enough to do my gig for 30 odd years, but I'm working on stuff that you guys won't hear for a year. And I'm in a unique position to talk about it from the beginning for me in the mid 80s to right now. That's a unique circumstance. I've talked to a lot of uh, folks in the television and film industry over the last year since I started the podcast. And one of the consistent pieces of advice that I hear is you have to be either in LA or in Atlanta. You know, those are the two hubs where you, you see that? a lot of the television and film being uh, produced. But when you're a voice actor, is the same true? Isn't it interesting that what you said, when I was talking about my, the beginning of my career, it was LA or New York. Atlanta was a city that was uh, really germane to the story of Gone with the Wind. I mean, I knew about Atlanta, yeah, but Atlanta was not even Atlanta. <laughs> uh, no, you go to New York. Right. 
Broadway, TV, movies, whatever. You go to LA to do TV, movies, music, what? Yeah. So now it's Atlanta, a right to work state, interestingly. And I'm a guy who's been in the performers unions for 40 years. So that, that's a whole different conversation. Here's the short answer. People are rolling their eyes going, yeah, you're impossible of giving one of those. Uh, <laughs> I believe that to do what I do and my friends, Eric Bauza, Billy West, Maurice LaMarche, Frank Welker, Peter Cullen, Tress McNeil, Tara Strong, over and over and over again, and all your listeners who like animation will know all these people, Kevin Conroy, you still have to be in LA. This is where Marvel, Warner Brothers, Disney, Nickelodeon, they're all, all their animation, most of it is done here. There's some, um, Archer, maybe a couple of other things are done in Atlanta for Time Warner, and that will probably change. But one of the things I failed to touch on it with your previous question is like, what, right now, we're on Zoom, and we know YouTube is old news now. Twitch TV, all these new platforms coming up all the time. I'm working with a new technology that allows me to perform and sing with no latency. If you're playing your banjo and I'm singing on this side of the equation, I, I work with something called Connection Open and it has eliminated the latency. So I can, if I say one, two, three, four, boom, you start and we're literally on the same beat, the same note. Now, for people who don't do a living, this for a living, that's a remarkable technology. Yeah. Latency is, is a huge problem. I, I think even for podcasts, it's terrible. But it is. Yeah, it is. And Zoom has just about cut it to zero, but this technology is a little different and it's called connection open. It's pretty cool. Anyway, I believe you still have to be here to do what I do at this level. However, that's changing because of YouTube, because of stuff, you can get stuff out there. Now, again, people are going to say, oh my God, look at all the YouTubers. Exactly. What the hell did you think was going to happen? If it works and you got a lady who is, says, I know, I'm going to interview celebrities while I'm sitting in a bathtub of cereal just because I can. Holy shit. <laughs> she interviewed the president. Now, oh. good for her. Does that make me angry? No. It's a little, it's a little, it gives me a little consternation. But who am I to, people take a lot of piss out of the Kardashians. I don't know that I've ever heard of any of the Kardashian girls being involved in drugs being involved in anything nefarious, they've developed their own brand and have done incredibly well with it. They're, they're quite brilliant. They're, they're quite brilliant in terms of self-promotion and marketing. I, I just- Sure. And the content itself, I've, I'm, my daughters watch it, so I end up watching it. And I yeah. have to say, I'm pulled into the drama. <laughs> and I, right, as, as much as I want to say, no, I, this is, I'm better than this. Yeah. I see the, I see the uh, attraction. I agree. And the same thing. It's not my cup of tea, but I got to tell you, if you essentially want to watch a human cockfight, people have been turning, tuning into Jerry Springer for 25 or 30 years. Right. And all that guy was, was a ringleader, a ringmaster who poked the guests and, and it was awful. It's reality TV. It's changed the, way, the landscape. My point is that all of these technologies are available to anybody. So, if you want to do this from Watertown, New York, and you come up with the next big thing and you're a YouTuber, great. But having dealt with a lot of young YouTubers, it's a kid I know out here who we got to work together on some Ninja Turtle stuff, promote turtles. His name is Alex Wasabi. And Alex is a really incredibly handsome, bright 31-year-old guy. That makes a million bucks a year from YouTube. So obviously, I had to ask him. I said, Jesus, how do you know? I've been doing this since I've been 13. 13? 13. He said, yeah, I found that I had this thing I wanted to do. I saw other people doing it. So I said, how did you do this? Well, finally, at 27, 14 years later, I hired somebody to help me with editing and, and getting it on YouTube because I'd build up, you know, like what, 
15, 13 million viewers or whatever. His content is literally his life. Mm -hmm. That's it. Okay. But he's handsome, very personable, took his innate gifts, but talk about the hustle. By the time he was 27, he was burned out because he has to do, you know, this with his phone every, you know, wedding day. Yeah. Every day. Has to cut it up, put it on there, and he was willing to do it. And he's reaping the rewards. But now he's going, how do I keep this going? Because I've made really nice money, but I haven't made enough money to live the rest of my life on. Because a million bucks in LA, nothing. Yeah. You want to buy a house for a million bucks, you probably would say, well, where's the other 5,000 square feet? Right. Good luck. Okay. Good luck. <laughs> so everything is relative, but he's learning that the hustle never stops. And he makes a million bucks a year. That's 20 grand a week. Now, it's a lot of money. Not if you're, not if you're done doing it at 30, it's not. You live to be 80. Yeah. You turn that spigot off, turn that spigot right. off, and, and then what, what else? You know, what else happens? Yeah. Nothing. What am I going to do now? Yeah. And, and so that's what I mean by, and that's what you suggested by, you know, that it never stops. But the opportunity to get your stuff out there has never been bigger. I'll give you a great example that I got to live, and this is important for folks who are interested in creating from their own location. And by the way, I touched on it earlier. I don't, where are you broadcasting from? I'm in central Washington state right now, but- uh, Okay, so you're up, you're up in COVIDville, as it were. Exactly. Right. Got it. And you look great. I'm glad things are well. But now you don't live in a terribly inexpensive state, however, because, uh, uh, but I think you have no, is it state tax or no sales tax? We have no state tax, no state income tax. Yeah. Okay. In California, in addition to my 38% federal tax, I pay 13% state tax and in LA County, a 10% sales tax. So effectively, at my income level, I'm paying about 50% of my income. If I pay my taxes on time, and there are years that I haven't, had to catch up with it. If I make 100 grand, I can really only spend about 55 or 60. In LA, after you pay your taxes, you're in trouble yeah. on 60 take home. Yeah. You're in trouble. Yeah. Okay. So what I tell people is I really didn't have a choice if I wanted to get people, if I wanted to put myself in a position to get lucky. I am the living, breathing example of luck is when opportunity meets preparation. I had prepared myself. I was ready when the high heat came over the plate. I was confident and I hit a home run more than once. However, if the opportunity had been afforded to me of living in central Michigan, where I could live for 30%, maybe 40% less than I live here, gas alone is a dollar a gallon cheaper in Michigan than it is here. I tell people all the time, Scratch that itch at home, man. If you're living in upstate New York or you're living in central Tennessee or you're living in Arkansas or you're living in Idaho, try to create some content at home and see what you get. Then you can prepare yourself both professionally and maybe stash a lot of money away because whatever you think you'll need to live in LA for a year while you're trying to get an agent and all that stuff, triple it. Hmm. And that wasn't the case when I moved here. It was expensive, but not even close to what it is now. New York is worse. So I think... Uh, by the way, let me, here, here, here's this example I was going to give you. I, I did a show a few years ago that lasted for two or three seasons called The Annoying Orange. And it was exactly what the name implies. It was talking sort of 3D orange that was really annoying. And <laughs> for some reason, people loved it. But the kid who put it together, very smart young man, I think he got his film degree from University of North Dakota. Now, with all due respect, the University of North Dakota may have a lovely film department, but it's not NYU. It's not USC. It's not University of Texas, you know, it's not Yale drama. It's University of North Dakota. 
Nonetheless, he learned his craft and he put together this thing on his own and blasted it out on YouTube, on social media, 15, 10 years ago, whatever it was. So he came to Hollywood with his little annoying orange program and it had 500 million views. Now, any executive who wants to take a meeting with some new upstart from North Dakota, you're going to get his attention or her attention by saying, well, I got 500 million views. Oh, really? Let me see. Holy shit. This guy's got half a billion views doing it from Bismarck. We got to talk to him. So they gave him a deal. It went great. I worked on it. John DiMaggio, whom you guys know is Bender from Futurama worked on it. Tom Kenny, SpongeBob was on it. Alice Cooper was on it. Tim Curry was on it. Guy made, he made his mark. Yeah. Now he has legitimacy. He's not going to live on the annoying orange, but he made some money. He's got contacts all over Hollywood now. He's probably 35. I don't know, maybe 30, but he's in. His, his career isn't made, but he's in. People respect, people are going to talk to him because of what he's already done. Right. But he did it before he came here. So I submit that with all these opportunities to get your stuff out there, do it at home first. Because part of what is daunting to people is saying, oh my God, I went to visit my friend in California. His apartment is a place I wouldn't keep my dog. He's paying 1800 bucks a month for it. No kidding. Yeah. You want to buy a house and put braces on your kid's teeth? Then think about it. But I didn't have this opportunity. So take advantage of it. You can be as creative as you want and try stuff, whether you're in mid-state uh, mid Washington, central Washington, or central Michigan. And I, I say, take advantage of that. And then decide if it's something that you really you know, decide you want to do. And, but to do what I do, at least right now, you have to be here. That may change even in my lifetime. They may say, Rob, if you want to retire and go back and live in northern Michigan, we can still record you. Good for you. Great. Right now, it hasn't gotten that way for me, but probably will be. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. So what does a voice actor have to do to get into a union and get benefits? Well, you can join the union anytime you want. It's expensive. And by the way, joining the Screen Actors Guild, it's, it's different than like the auto workers or uh, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. It's a different, it's more of a guild. That is to say, we all stick together. We all work for the betterment of one another's lives and we all pay dues. And when we work, we work for a minimum amount of money that we're guaranteed. And we have certain benefits that collect. And thank goodness I have met and fulfilled all my that's crazy talking to a guy about my retirement benefits. But I was fully vested with respect to that aspect of my participation years ago, because there's a, there are only certain limits that you get where once you reach a certain amount, you can't make any more in your retirement. And I fortunately have hit that mark. And it's a nice little stipend, but it ain't enough to live on, not in LA. Yeah. And I've been here 40 years. So what one does is generally the way to do it is how I did it. And honestly, I don't know if it's that much different now. That's a, uh, I, I couldn't give you that with authority. What I did is I moved out here. I chummed the waters. I banged on doors. I did all that stuff. And I finally found an agent. It took me about a year, year and a half to get an agent. When I did, my agent signed me as, uh, as an on-camera talent. Like every other fresh-faced 22-year-old kid from the Midwest, I was sent on some jack-in-the-box commercials on camera, and I booked them. I think it was a series of four or five commercials. So I was not in the union. And when that happens, there is a 
a provision by which non-union members can join the union. Uh, they are called Taft-Hartley. You can work, you can work once on, an, on a union production without joining it. However, you can also choose to join the union, thereby making yourself a part of it. And obviously, I chose that path because I wasn't here for one shot. I was here for till today. That's how I got in the union. In those days, the Screen Actors Guild, which is the first union I joined, that was my parent union, there was a different union called AFTRA, the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. And that union oversaw the workings of people in radio, on videotape, that is to say soap operas. And, and so the medium dictated the union to which you belonged. I joined the Screen Actors because the first gigs I did were on film, animation, film, and that was the way those unions were separated. They ultimately joined. It made perfect sense. And so now we have one union because we don't even use videotape anymore. We don't record music on vinyl anymore. We have radio, and there are people who are just members of AFTRA doing radio, but most actors are members of SAG-AFTRA now, and they, they merge. So when I joined SAG, it was then 50% less to join AFTRA because I was doing a lot of TV and radio, uh, a lot of radio commercials as well. I think I've done over a thousand radio commercials. And that was uh, how I joined the other union. So now if you came to LA or, or even New York, you would become a member of SAG-AFTRA. And I believe it's the same way that you go to New York, millions of people come here with no union affiliation. Doesn't stop us. You know, you're going to run into that conundrum. Well, I met an agent and the first thing he asked me was, are you a member of SAG-AFTRA? Well, no. Well, you have to be a member of SAG-AFTRA before we were interested. Well, you can't be a member unless you get a job. Yeah, sorry. Click next. Wow. Happens all the time. So? Catch 22. Utterly. Utterly. So you say, hmm, well, how did Rob Paulson do it? Well, he just kept going until he found an agency who had split off from another agency and they were looking for actors, anybody with a pulse <laughs> whom they could you know, fill their roster with. And by the way, this is unusual. And I got to tell, I've been represented by a company called Sutton, Barth and Venari here in LA. And I've been with them for 41 years. That never happens. Yeah. I am, talk about a long Hollywood marriage, but my timing was good only because I put myself in a position to take advantage of the timing. It took me a year and a half for the timing to be right. But when it did, it was an agency who said, okay, we're with a big agency and we got two or three hotshot agents who are really good and they want to go off on their own. Okay, I just met this kid, Rob Paulson. You know what? He's pretty sharp. Doesn't have his union stuff in. Doesn't matter. We're going to send him out and when he gets a job, he'll join the union. Right, Rob? You bet. And that's exactly what happened. So it's doable. Is it a hassle? Yeah. Well, so that's how that works. Yeah. And it, So I'd like to ask you about the, the types of cartoons that I'm seeing on um, various streaming services now, and particularly Rick and Morty, because I've oh, seen that God. you have done some Rick and Morty work. And, and my, what a show. My, my youngest daughter, she just begged me to watch this show over and over. And finally, we were on a holiday um, over Christmas. And I, Pardon I, me, how, how old is your baby? She's 19 now. Oh, great. And, okay. And so she's not a little kid. No, she's, she's my youngest, but uh, she's, she is so into Rick and Morty. Uh, and I was like, a cartoon? Really? You're 19 years old. So she pulls me in. And I'm I, I, 63, Dad. <laughs> I, started, I started watching this thing and I realized extremely sophisticated uh, storytelling and humor. Yep. Um, and I, I'm thinking, this is just next level animation and storytelling. Yep. So when did you see that start to happen in the animation world? Well, I think 
arguably the Simpsons. I mean, yeah. you know, when you, uh, I remember my parents saying, do you know uh, the show called The Simpsons? I said, yeah, here's a Greek Hollywood story. Nancy Cartwright, who's the voice of Bart, and I have been with, with Sutton, Bart, and Barnard at the same time. She's from Dayton and I'm from Michigan. We were working on a, uh, we were doing post-production voice work on a movie called Endless Love years ago with Brooke Shields and directed by Franco Zeffirelli. Anyway, we were working on, on it. And we went and had lunch at a place called Marie Callender's out here. And I'll never forget this. I was, we were probably in our mid-20s, 26, 27. So Nancy and I, we know each other quite well. We're sitting around, what you working on, Nance? Well, you know, she, she's one of the few actors I know who moved to LA just to do cartoons. That really was her Jones. She studied with Dawes Butler, who was uh, Huckleberry Hound and Yogi Bear. I mean, she, she really, I came out here to do other stuff. She came out here to do cartoons. She said, well, I just got this fun cartoon thing based on a comic strip here in LA called Life in Hell. And we're doing it for the Tracy Ullman show. I think they're calling it the Joneses or the Simpsons. I don't know. But anyway, we'll see what happens. Okay, Robbie, I love you. Bye. Oh, my gosh. Okay. What now, a- that was one of those shows where after like the fifth or sixth or eighth season in primetime, that my parents said, have you ever heard of this show? I said, it's pretty goddamn funny, Rob. I said, yeah, it is. And I know Bart and Homer. And you know Homer? Isn't that interesting? My own parents, when I told them, oh, yeah, Dan, Ka- yeah, it's Homer. What's it? Dan Castellaneta. If you want to watch him on camera, he's this, this, this. They go, you know Homer? Isn't that interesting? My parents. And so that's to me when things really started getting sophisticated in your lifetime. When I was a kid, there was primetime animation. The Flintstones used to be primetime. Johnny Quest used to be primetime. It wasn't nearly the, the edgy content that we have now, but the, you can make the argument that Simpsons really, I mean, they, they put Fox on the map and they changed the whole landscape of what is acceptable with respect to adult animation. Then we had Family Guy, Futurama, et cetera, et cetera. Rick and Morty is a great example of this sort of next wave to me. And I will certainly owe uh, both Dan Harmon and Justin Roiland my incredible gratitude because the first episode of Rick and Morty on which I work, I walked in and I met uh, young Justin, who is, by the way, the voice of Rick and Morty and is utterly involved in every episode, incredibly bright guy. And he said, Rob, he called me Mr. Paulson. I said, no, 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 please don't do that. Rob, this is a real pleasure. When I was a kid, I vowed that there were a half dozen actors from, you know, Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain, people that, folks that I watched, Futurama, that I said one day. And right away, he hired me. He hired Tress McNeil, who's Dot. He hired Maurice LaMarche, who's the Brain, right away. And the first line I had on my first episode of Rick and Morty was the following. Where are my testicles, Summer? (laughs) And I thought, now you're talking. I did exactly what you're doing. I started laughing. I said, oh, shit, this is, this is great because it's a, it's a nutless dog who is tired of being an indentured slave. And it was this metaphorical example of how, you know, we really are kind of cruel to these critters. We assume that we're doing it for their own good. And we assume that we know what we're doing on their behalf. But what if these dogs were much more, I mean, we know they're sentient. But what about if they, what if they really knew, like, wait a minute, you just cut my balls off and I'm not even married. <laughs> I mean, I know what, you know, talk about metaphor. Okay. So, and it was an excellent episode because it, I don't know if people remember, but please watch. It's called Lawnmower Dog. And I've done, I think, half a dozen episodes, but it was really excellent because I read the script and it's, 
there's a point at which the dogs start to become like, uh, like, a, like they want to mount this insurrection against humankind. And Snowball says, now, wait a minute. We're better than this. We're not them. We are doing, we're trying to make a point, but it's not, it's like, it's like passive resistance. And it was a fascinating sort of allegory on what if these creatures we purport to love so much say, don't, don't do that to me. Not, not because we, we, you know, we also know it's a good thing for dogs to not procreate too much. We understand that, but it was an interesting analogy, an interesting story told with crazy humor, pathos. As you said, you watch and you go, holy, this is sharp. Yeah. And, and you know what else? They deliver over and over and over again. Folks listening, if you want to talk about something that's tough in show business, that's tough. To be able to have something where not only is it long running like The Simpsons, Rick and Morty now, MASH, Cheers, something, Mr. Spielberg, somebody who by and large hits it out of the park 70% of the time, even 60% of the time. If you hit home runs, if you're on base, six out of 10 home runs or six out of 10 times, you're batting 600. And nobody in history has ever hit 600. So to be able to deliver on that level with a discerning audience over and over again is very tough. Justin Roiland and Dan Harmon are the real freaking deal. Incredible show. I I like how you phrased it. um, What if? And if you pose that question, what if? That's where the really good storytelling is. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and so you- Exactly right. Because we're not limited. Um, when you say what if, that opens up everything. The moment you say those two magical words, there are no hindrances, no encumbrances. That's when the magic happens. What if? One of my close friends uh, with whom I've had a lot, and I got to stop dropping names. Bob De Niro told me that. <laughs> but um, one of my dear friends over the past 10 years, because he hired me to work for him, is uh, David Copperfield. Dave and I are the same age. Guy's worth a billion dollars. It's not about the money. You guys, it hasn't been about the money for a guy like Copperfield or Steven Spielberg. It hasn't been about the money for those guys for 25 years, 20, 30 years. Spielberg's worth what, three or four billion? It doesn't matter. Yeah. It is about what if. And you are the one, you coined that beautifully. I'm going to steal it, but you coined it beautifully because it is. Those guys all go, what if? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And David Copperfield, at 63 years old, David Kotkin from a touch in New Jersey, still says, "What if? Hmm. I have the resources. I know what I want to do. And wait till my audience sees this. Mm. Hey, Dave, you want to buy another Lamborghini? No, I don't care about that sort of shit. What I care about is how do I build the next mind-blowing illusion, and how do I keep the marathon going? It's not about the money." Even to me, don't get me wrong, I've been rich and I've been poor. I don't have that kind of Jake, you know, but I, uh, and rich is way better. But for me, the way to become rich is to continue to be driven by the passion, the same passion that used to float my boat at 10 years old when I would, you know, get that little Jones of the first time that somebody laughs at you or kind of goes, wow, this kid's really sharp, whether you are or not. Man, the first one's free, baby. But after that, I'm a junkie. And that is what floats my boat. And my book even recounts times when I put the cart too far in front of the horse, where I said, wow, I made a lot of money on that last gig. If I could do that every day, I'm going to be shitting in high It's just awful. But I realized that the passion is what keeps me going. And it is for other people who are way, 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 way bigger entities in this business. Scientists, people busting their ass right now. You think Tony Fauci does what he does for the money? I don't think so. I think it's because they have this deep, innate desire to do 
good work that helps people. So I don't think it's germane just to show business. I think people of all levels, men and women who achieve really, really wonderful things are driven by, uh, and, and by the way, it's not to say that if you just want to say, I want to make all the money I can, that's bad either. As long as you do it ethically and morally, good for you. But I love people like the folks we discussed who at the very highest level say, what if? Yeah. So thank you very much for using those two words. Perfect. Yeah. That's a good lesson in life because if you think back on probably the questions that Spielberg was asking, he, he did ET, right? Yes. So what on if- which I worked, by the way. I, oh, you I did? On it. Oh, I did. It was cool. Goodness. I spent two days working on it, doing background voices years ago, doing what Nancy Cartwright and I had done in this other movie. I've worked on probably, I don't know, 10 or 20 features doing that stuff. E.T., Endless Love, Taps, Under the Rainbow, Spaceballs. Oh my God, lots and lots of stuff. Anyway, uh, yeah, in those days, the movie was called A Boy's Life. And Mr. Spielberg came into the session and the creature was blacked out. And he would say, okay, here's what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And you see these doctors, they're real doctors. And frankly, their performances are real flat. So we need you to juice them up a little bit for dramatic interest. When they were working on E.T.? Yes. And so a bunch of other stuff back there. And we, we, a lot of us do this all the time. It's a great way to make, and I met so many wonderful actors, Phil Hartman, John Paragon, Dan Castellaneta, Lorraine Newman, so many wonderful actors doing that. Uh, but yeah, so yes, exactly. You, you're, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but yes, go on to what you're saying about Mr. Spielberg. Yeah, well, I, I think the what if question applies, like you're saying, to so many aspects of our life. But really what pulls us in is that what if to stories in general. And E.T. is a great example of, you know, Spielberg probably asked that question, that very question, what if an alien got stranded on Earth and a little boy found him? Perfect. It's that simple. What's not simple is filling out the story and telling it so that you and I are talking about it. It was 1982. You and I are talking about it 40 years later, almost 38 years later, we're talking about it. I got an ET residual check last month for like $18. Um, thank <laughs> that's you, Screen awesome. Actors Guild. Oh, that's great. But isn't that something that we're talking about? That is the magic of a guy like Steven. And I would submit the same thing with Justin Roiland. Those boys and young women who are creating things right now are the folks in the future. And a guy like Mr. Spielberg would do nothing but encourage them. Yeah. Um, I have had the great good fortune of working with him on ET, Amazing Stories in an on-camera job. Tiny Toon Adventures. We did, I don't know, 100 episodes of that. Then Animaniacs, Pinky in the Brain. And now, 25 years later, he's now, I think, 72 or three. The king of Hollywood calls up and says, hey, Rob, Tress, Jess, Maurice, what do you think about doing Animaniacs and Pinky in the Brain again for this new technology called Hulu? Wow. Are you effing kidding me? <laughs> what that tells me are two things. A, that it doesn't matter how he tells his stories, his stories, whether it's animation or big time. I mean, you're talking about a guy who talk about running the gamut of emotions. We're, I know we're preaching to the choir because we all know his incredible skill. But the same person that tells a story of E.T.'s tells a story of, of Schindler's List, a, a movie that you can't watch without going, what, how on earth did this happen? How did this happen? But talk about skill. Talk about storytelling. Moreover, they're talking about kindness and authenticity. When Steven Spielberg decided to do Pinky and the Brain and Animaniacs again and chose to use the original voice actors, because it's not about my face. It's not about the fact that we're skinnier or fatter or taller or shorter or grayer than we used to be. It's about the fact that 
Every time I say, hello, nurse, Stephen says, oh, that's Yakko. That's Rob. And he knows that I've been going around the country singing United States, Canada, Mexico, with, you know, Animaniacs in concert. Or he sees Maurice and I doing a, a Q&A at New York Comic Con at Pinky in the Brain with 5,000 people in the audience. And he's saying, Pinky, are you pondering what I'm pondering? And I say, I think so, Brain, but me and Pippi Longstocking, what would the children look like? Nerve. And <laughs> Stephen says, holy shit, these guys still got it. So it never occurred to the king of Hollywood to call any of his famous friends to voice Pinky in the Brain or Anim. It was like, oh, Tress, Jess, Robin, Maurice. No, if you guys want to do this, we're in. Mm. Are you kidding me? What an honor. What an honor indeed. But moreover, that shows you how to behave if you ever cultivate anything resembling celebrity in your life for any reason. That's how you behave. It's about respecting and honoring and making it about the other person. Part of Steven Spielberg's genius, I submit, is that he knows who to hire and turn them loose. Mm. Now, he oversees it, but I know from experience that he doesn't micromanage. He can say, no, 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 not happy with this. Okay, but he knows who to hire. And it happens over and over again. It's happened in our case. He knows that the fan base is already going to be kind of going, well, I don't know if it's going to be as good as the original. Okay, but I'm going to take the question mark of the authenticity of the characters out of it, because I know that the audience knows, just like with Mel Blanc. As soon as he says, eh, what's up, Doc? They go, oh, well, that's the real deal. And as long as Maurice, Tress, Jess, and Rob are alive, able to do it, and want to do it, I, the king of Hollywood, would be an idiot to hire Liam Neeson and Russell Brand to be pinky in the brain. You know, right. I'd be an idiot <laughs> just because of the star power. So Stephen actually is, is proving my example for me about how you can't argue with whom they choose because it's their money. But he knows it's not about star power. It's not about Rob's face. It's about the fact that when he starts saying, I think so, Brain, that the audience says, holy shit, mm. that is really pinky. Yeah. And that's important in that circumstance. So that tells you that it's not, you know, it, it's here's the guy who could do whatever he wants and he knows it's about authenticity. What an incredible guy. Yeah. What a way to carry yourself as, as a celebrity, you know? Right. And, and I got it. There's one more example I have to use because it's, it's how I live my life now. When I was a kid, all I wanted to do is be a hockey player. And I learned very early that I had neither the talent nor temperament nor dental insurance to make a freaking dime as a hockey player. But my hero was always a guy named Gordie Howe, who was, you know, Wayne Gretzky's hero. And I got, had the great good fortune of getting to know Gordy and Colleen Howe, Mr. and Mrs. Howe, Mr. and Mrs. Hockey, if you will, very well. Did a lot of fundraisers, a lot of celebrity hockey games, glorious experience. But he, like other great people, was a great example of how to move through your life. I saw him interact with people at my father's age, and they would fall apart because this was the greatest hockey player who'd ever lived and taking a picture with him, all that stuff. You know what that's like. And but I'll never forget, Gordy Howe went from being my on-ice idol as a boy to my lifetime hero as a man, because we were together at his invitation at a fundraiser in, I don't know, early 90s, someplace in Vancouver. And I was sitting next to Gordy signing Ninja Turtle stuff all day. His grandkids were turtle freaks, and obviously all the kids up in Vancouver were as well. And a young man came up to Gordy for an autograph, having been in line for about an hour, probably 30. And he said, gosh, thank you so much for signing my puck, Mr. Howe. This is really incredible. And Gordy, at 65, older than I am now, Gordy put his, pen, his Sharpie down. And he looked at that young man. And he said, not at all, son. I've worked too hard for this privilege. And in that moment, he went, I will never 
forget that. It happened once. I saw it happen. I heard those words and I thought, wow, dude, mm. that, that right there. Humility. Total humility. He gets, a farm boy from Saskatchewan gets that he has walked with kings. He knows everybody. Everybody knows him. I, had, I used to have lunch with him in Santa Monica on a Sunday with me, he and Mr. and Mrs. Howe that would be there. And people would come up and say, are you Gordy Howe? In Santa Monica on a Sunday, you know. But my point is that, you, well, my point is, you get my point. Yeah. And I promise you, there isn't a time that goes by, today included, in which I think, wow, this journey has really been worth it because I worked really hard for the privilege of this sweet young man giving me an hour of his time. This is a total privilege to be in this position, to be able to not only talk about what is important to you, but to be able to help others, to be able to be in a position to bring them joy, perhaps learn from my own cancer experience. This is a privilege. And I have zero patience with people who feel otherwise. I realize that a lot of celebrities do things very clandestinely and write checks for a million dollars and God bless them. But I have zero patience with people who take their success for granted or who don't take the time in a reasonable way. Now, look, if you can't go to the grocery store, that's different. And I've never experienced that. But then you just have to learn how to change your life a little bit. Yeah. You know, just have to say, look, I have to have somebody go shopping for me. Because when I go outside and when I put myself in a public forum, I have to be ready to be respectful of the privilege that I've earned by having people who just want to shake my hand. Right. So if I can't do it in a nice fashion, there are days when I have to say, I just can't go out today. Part of the deal, pal. And so I, you're talking to a lottery winner, but moreover, I and my friends who are lucky to do this, we all get it. This is not something that we take for granted, I can guarantee you. Well, uh, Rob, it's been so fun to talk to you about your career. Thank you, buddy. This, uh, the conversation went in a direction I did not expect it to go. I, I, was, well, I hope that's a good thing. I, it's a great thing because it, it's more organic that way. Yeah. Um, but what happened was we didn't talk about some things that I, I thought were going to come up, like you know your cancer treatment and how that impacted your career and things like that. So maybe if you're open to it, we can schedule a volume two. Oh, I'd be utterly, totally flattered. And, and if you would, if you'd like to talk specifically about the nuts and bolts of that whole experience, I'd be happy to, because I'm not afraid of it. I embrace it. I'm the spokesman, the 22, I'm sorry, 2020 spokestune for the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance. I had stage three metastatic squamous cell carcinoma in my throat. And so folks can go to headandneck.org and they'll see a little video about yours truly and my experience with cancer, but there's a lot to learn. And this is a very treatable form of cancer that the treatment, I'm not going to lie to you, it's gnarly, but it works. And if I can do this and have Mr. Spielberg say, yeah, cancer, oh, I don't care and I can't tell. How do you, you want to do this again? then, you know, it's worth checking out. If you are concerned about this particular throat, nasal, tonsil, salivary gland, please go to headandneck.org. There's a lot of great information and it's very treatable and curable. Great, great information. And I'll put, that, I'll put that in the show notes. And can you tell listeners where they can find you on social media and what projects you're currently excited about? You've mentioned the Animaniacs uh, reboot and- Yeah, that's pretty tough to get much more excited about anything than that because- uh, isn't that something we are, we're now in a position and here we go. You've already, you've lifted up an, another something that's wonderful to talk about. You guys, people who are fans of, and I'm presupposing that you are a fan, but just assume you are, people who are fans of Animaniacs and Pinking the Brain are now going to be able this fall 
to go on Hulu, and which, on which, by the way, all Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain episodes are, are streaming live right now. Uh, but you're going to be able to go to Hulu, watch your favorite episode of Animaniacs or Pinky and the Brain, and then five seconds later, watch a brand new episode. Now, it does two things. It's fun for the consumer, but for the people doing the new version, the, the bar's pretty high. You know, people love those shows for reasons that are essentially art for the sake of the art. Because look, you're talking to 50% of the Ninja Turtles. I know all about merchandising. But Animaniacs and Pink in the Brain were, had relatively sm small amounts of stuff. It wasn't about action figures. It wasn't about Transformers, right? It was about the content. And that's what drove it to be picked up again. So people are going to be able to see a brand new episode right next to an old favorite. And they're going to judge it right away. Mm. What a challenge that is for us. And especially for the young writers who grew up watching it, knowing, holy shit. These guys are saying my words, and the words they spoke 25 years ago, yeah. a lot of them have become memes, have become culturally iconic. What if, <laughs> how's that, dot, yeah. dot, dot, this time, what if it goes south? Nice callback. The power of those <laughs> words, right? Yeah. You, you were brilliant in throwing that out there. So our job is to maintain the bar. I love that challenge. So again, getting able to speak about in the same breath a life-threatening, career-threatening at least, life-threatening at worst situation that I found myself in has resulted in me getting a chance to do this again and embracing a challenge that was not even possible when we did the first version. Pardon me, this is fucking unbelievable that this has happened in one actor's lifetime at this level. Yeah. And that I get to talk about, when, if I had been diagnosed with this cancer 25 years ago, we wouldn't be having this conversation because I wouldn't have had the career. I'd be dead. Now, it's treatable, and I get to go do it again, and I get to go interview it. Once the show comes on, presumably it'll be successful, and I'm going to be doing press about it, and I'm, I'm doing it, but I'm, what a, an interesting confluence of circumstances. I, I took advantage of incredible medical technology that thousands of other people had to go through, finding out whether or not their flip of the coin would work, mm. and a lot of them didn't make it. I did because of thousands of people who came before me. And because I survived, I am now in a position to be part of one of the most joyful experiences of my life. And literally thousands, maybe even millions of others who are waiting for this reboot with Steven Spielberg. Wow. So look at that. This is just one human. What a remarkable time we live in. And I know it gets existential, but your show not only encourages that, it's important because after I'll be dead long before you will be, but there will be lessons from this lovely conversation that people will glean 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. Isn't that something? That's amazing. I, I, I'm so grateful that you gave me the opportunity and I'm happy to do it again at your convenience. Thank you. Well, thank you. Your, your gratitude is contagious and Good. inspiring. So. Rob, thank you again for being on the show and for sharing your story with us. And I'll be looking forward to the Hulu launch in the fall and wa watching that with my family. And maybe we can talk again this year. Hey, man. Again, you fired up. I'm ready and waiting. I'm going to stay up all night every day until you call me again. So thank you for <laughs> turning me into a slobbering mess. No, man, I, it's been a, a total pleasure. I, I'm really grateful. And thank you to your audience for a remarkable career. And I always like to leave people with that laughter is the best medicine. And the cool thing is you can't OD and the refills are free. Yeah. So 
Right now, COVID schmovid, baby. I know I, I shouldn't be so cavalier. That's not fair. It's very rude of me to, because I know there are far too many people who are sick and have not made it. But irrespective of that, there are people who've gone through horrible things who are finding ways to remember their loved ones and laugh. Yeah. And I'm telling you, when you talk to people who've gone through <laughs> the, the Holocaust and you meet them and every freaking one of them has something about which they, they hung on to that made them joyful. It just so happens that my livelihood seems to do that. So please find ways to laugh from your soul, folks. And thank you very much again, God, buddy. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Rob. All right. Take care. Okay, man. Bye-bye. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.